Hello and welcome to NDA, the show where I guess I argue with creators about the creator economy. Hello and welcome to NDA. My name is Dave Wiskus. This is the Creator Economy Show where I talk to interesting creator economy people about creator economy things within the creator economy. And we try to say creator economy as many times as we possibly can. The spirit of this is to talk to the folks that I would talk to on a normal day to day basis and, and share the sorts of conversations that we would have normally behind closed doors. I don't think there is anyone who better exemplifies the sort of collaborative tension that I think this show will best embody more than my guest on this episode, Sam from Wendover. We bicker constantly, <laughs> I think in a very productive way. And, and that's, that's kind of... No, I think you bicker with me and I just talk. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Such a contrarian. Yeah. It's not a bit like we we really do work this way. We really do like challenge each other and we're always quick to admit like, oh, nope, you're right about that one. Maybe not gleefully, but there's never tension for the sake of tension. It's always because we want the better thing to happen. Why do you think that is? Why are you so hard to work with? <laughs> That's how I'm going to open the show. Why are you so difficult? I don't know. In my view, uh, I think I'm very easy to work with. You just have to uh, uh -huh. answer some messages and then you make your 20%. Um, super easy. That's all it takes for you, right? That's all I do. That's all I do. Yeah. <laughs> I just show up and collect checks. I think we've both been doing this long enough that we have yeah. very confident opinions on the best way to do something. And, you know, not only, you know, I, I, I think both you and I tend to have certain things where we know that we're confident in our opinion mm. and other things that we know we're maybe, you know, we lean that way, but we're not necessarily hundred percent confident. But those times when it is that, you know, hundred percent confidence, it's really hard to, you know, when you truly believe something and that your opinions have been backed up by a certain level of success in, in what we're doing, since of course we're talking about this in a business perspective, then, you know, it's very easy for, I think, me to trust my opinions and very easy for you to trust your opinions. And then I think we also both recognize that the right way to do things is be confident in your opinions if you truly believe in them, but be very prepared to bring other opinions into the fold and properly evaluate them in order to potentially sway yours or to change your mind if you're just leaning and not 100% confident. Hopefully that makes sense to anyone but myself. <laughs> I'm a big believer in Strong Opinions Weekly Held. I do not get paid to be right. I get paid to have opinions. I get paid to make connections. I get paid to build relationships. None of those things require me to be right all the time. The most important thing I can do is help forge paths to whatever is right. And yeah, and I think a really important step in kind of growing a business is moving your kind of personal satisfaction from you being right to your business being right. Because then you're making it more than just yourself. You're making it a team of people. And usually properly configured, a team of people can make better decisions than an individual. I would definitely emphasize that when properly configured, because it can also be the opposite. There's a million ways to do it wrong. Sure. But yeah, when you make it a team endeavor and make it team success or failure, then I think it, you know, a businesses are more successful and it's less personal stress and probably more satisfaction too. You know what really helps? Being a rock star. 
I don't mean being really great, but I mean, literally, like, if you've ever spent time in a band or doing music stuff, that kind of like you're all working together to make a thing happen and you kind of you all need to be on the same page and you all need to have the same goals, you need to be working from the same set of instructions and whatnot. Sure, that's just generally music. But I say rock star because like in rock and roll, there's usually the front man or front woman. I've learned from being in bands and doing the rock star thing in real life, I don't need to care if the cool hook of the song was mine or if I wrote the great keyboard solo or if I came up with the sound of a particular thing because, like, I'm the lead singer. I'm always going to get credit. I'm the front man. I'm always going to get credit. Whether I deserve it or not, I'm always going to get credit. So the thing that's in my best interest is making sure that the thing I'm getting credit for is the best possible thing. So running a, an organization like like this, being the CEO of something, I'm still just kind of like the lead singer. I'm still just sort of the front man. I'm going to get credit or blame for what the rest of the team does unfairly or fairly. So the most important thing I can do is make sure that what goes out the door is really good, even if it wasn't my idea. Yeah, I, I think whenever a business, you know, grows from an individual as, as, you know, both Nebula and Wendover has, there is a transition point to understanding that, to understanding that your role is essentially the manager in one way or another, whether, you know, no matter the title. And when you're the manager, as you're saying, yeah, absolutely. It's success or failure of the business is your success or failure, regardless of kind of your personal success or failure. When you build a team, when you build your band, you and I have done this in fairly different ways. It's especially interesting because we got started in the YouTube business at about the same time. We've kind of come up in this together. But for all of the things that you and I have reached agreements on or I have seen that your suggestions are correct, you've seen that my suggestions are correct, the one thing I think we still pretty strongly disagree on is the right way to build a team. Yeah, but I think I've convinced you more recently. <laughs> well, you tend to, you want everybody to be in one room. You want everybody to be in one city. No, not entirely. You know, may, maybe it's useful to give the listeners a bit of a rundown of, of like how the Wendover team is configured. Sure. Yeah, please do. I'm sure they would love that. So, yeah, basically how it is, is we have... I always forget the exact number. One, two, three, four, f five of us in Colorado, um, where I am now. Two of us in New York. We're hiring there. And all of those people are producers slash writers. So that's all kind of the big creative decision makers within anything that we do, from concept ideation to packaging, so like title, topic, thumbnail, to uh, execution in the script. And then all of our post-production, with limited exception, all of our post-production we do remote with a studio that basically handles um, almost all of our editing, all of our motion graphics, all of our music, audio, et cetera, all of that. And, and you know, the reason why is because I've always thought of the channels that we do as being kind of concept and script forward. You know, the thing that makes or breaks a Wendover video, an HI video, or a jet lag video is less so the edit, is less so the post-production. And, and you know, don't get me wrong, those bits are absolutely still important. But the thing that really makes or breaks a video in our case, and this is not everyone's case, but in our case, is the writing and the concept. So those are like our highest value add functions. That's where an individual working at Wendover, you know, has the most possible kind of effect on the success or failure of an individual video or an individual channel, or that's just the success or failure of the business. Whereas I think it's less so tied to post-production. Post-production is still tremendously important to a video. 
But I do think of it as like, you cannot have a good video without a great script and concept. You can have a good video without perfect post-production. As we have grown more, as we have you know gotten to a larger scale, I have become a little bit more focused on post-production and especially recently have um, started to shift more attention onto perfecting the visual side of, uh, of the videos. But still, it seems to make more sense, you know, considering that, well, management is a cost when you're running a business. Like you have to think of management as a cost, even if it's not necessarily a direct monetary cost, it's an opportunity cost. So basically an additional person added to the team immediately from day one, not only has a salary cost, but a management cost. And that management cost, that opportunity cost of the management time needed for another person, that can be significant. So I've never previously seen it worth it to internalize the management of post-production. So that's why that part is fully remote. But for everything else, in-person really matters because you know we work very collaboratively. My day yesterday, from 8 a.m. to 5 p.m., every single minute on my calendar, with its exception for a 30-minute lunch break, every single minute was scheduled as either a call or a meeting working with my team or a few external calls. And that level of collaboration, the additional benefit by being in the same room, working in the same place can be pretty massive to the success or failure, in my opinion. I think it depends on what exactly you're doing. Generally speaking, I don't know, COVID sort of proved that the the world is learning this. You don't need everybody in the, the same room. And oftentimes it's less productive to force everybody to commute an hour to get there. In our case, we have three people here in the New York office that's three of us in here every day. Me, uh, my assistant, and Mike, who is our director for all of our classes and in-studio originals and things like that. And then we have in Denver, at the Denver office, which is a, a much smaller location, a larger number of people. It's like six, but they're not all in every day. They sort of take turns going in because people have kids or whatever. And they'll get together for meetings as necessary, but they don't need to be in the same room all day every day. Our engineering team is scattered everywhere. I don't think we have any two engineers who ever work from the same location. And the, I would say the tightest group within the company is engineering, not because anybody else is doing poorly, but because engineering is a thing that is uh, more broadly understood. I think understanding how to build something and how to write code and those those systems, that industry has been around for a while where YouTube is still fairly new and the rest of this we're figuring out a little bit. Because engineering is a slightly more wizened type of team, they tend to be more efficient in general, just uh, the age. But it's not lost on me that that is also a 100% fully distributed team. And I don't think that putting those people in a room together would increase productivity at all. I think it might actually hurt. I agree. I think we're fully on the same page with this because engineering, it's it's a fairly standardized job. Mm-hmm. The way you go about it, from my understanding, it doesn't actually change that much from company to company, um, which is what allows kind of the mobility within that world. So there's not a lot to be gained or lost necessarily by the interpersonal relationships of people and by their ability to communicate more or less effectively. Um, Certainly not nothing, but a lot less. The distinction between something like engineering and something like production, and especially production in our way, is that every single thing that we do is something completely new. It's something, you know, every, every single project that we make, and especially so nowadays, 
is coming up with something completely new with a completely new kind of concept, business model, production process, etc. So every single time we go about it, we have to kind of reinvent what we do. We have to build it back up from the bottom. And certainly there are things that are similar from one project to the next, but there's a lot of differences compared to other industries. So having a really good understanding of not only communication, but also just um, collaboration, which I believe genuinely is improved by working in person, that can make not a massive difference, but I think in the creative field, especially when you know, you're already relatively you know, successful in the creative field, the margins of success are, are tiny. The difference between an, a good thing and a great thing are very nuanced changes. Oh, so you're saying that like because these are writers and because the marginal difference is so important, doing creative writing in the same room together can be faster and tighter and the, you can get more out of the margin. It's not so much the writing process. The writing process, actually, that honestly, I think it's uh, it's actually better for people to be like sitting on their own couch and and just doing it them, you know, kind of solo. Because once you actually get into the procedural operational part of writing, that is a fully personal exercise. But that is actually a very small percentage of the job of a writer. I'm thinking more like writer's room, like a TV style writer's room. You're standing around a conference table, whiteboarding stuff, breaking stories and figuring out this goes here, this goes here, here's the structure. And then somebody goes and sits down and writes. Is that not how you approach it? Yeah, most of the time of any of us goes to stuff like that, goes to concepts, ideation, all sorts of things that lead to the writing process. So those aspects are the ones where it helps tremendously to be sitting around a table together, being able to really communicate, being able to draw stuff out in front of us, being able to um, work on a super nuanced basis. And then also just understanding not only how each of us work, but also just like who each other is as people, because that does relate to how people work, who they are as people. That also helps in terms of, you know, creating an integrated production process. Because again, anything that we do, you know, individual scripts of ours can have sections written by three different people in the case of extremities. Other properties, it tends to be more like two or one. But being able to write a script that you cannot tell when it switches from one writer to the next with three different people, that's really hard. And that requires really close collaboration. So sitting right next to another person, three, four or five feet away, who you are working with that closely makes a huge difference in the nuanced difference between that and, you know, having to communicate over Zoom or say, hey, can we uh, hop on Zoom for five minutes and 15 minutes because I have a question to run past you? Um, and also because that's in 15 minutes, I'm just going to check Twitter for the next 15 minutes. And then I've lost like a half hour productivity to ask a question that I could have asked in 30 seconds uh, if you're sitting right next to me. It's those fine differences that make a huge difference in, in the overall final product, I think. How much of that do you need? Like how much of it is a day-to-day opportunism thing. I'm thinking about like, we do these uh, summits here at the New York office. The last one we did was a week, two weeks ago, where our product team, CTO, chief technology officer, our chief product officer, our chief creative officer, and uh, I forget her her title, VP of project management. Uh, the, the like ultimate project management person, Brianne. They all came into the office. We kind of like just talked through a a big new feature that we're working on for Nebula and how to do it and what the priorities are and how do we build prioritization systems. We didn't really have an agenda coming into it, but spending two days going through sharing thoughts and then 
spitballing stuff at lunch or at dinner or over coffee, there was tons of opportunity in there for us to let ideas expand beyond what would have come out of a one-hour Zoom call. So no disagreement for me that having people in the same room can have huge benefits. But at the same time, if I had to be in the same room with those people all day, every day, I'd go insane. I wouldn't get anything done. So where's the line? How much of that can you capture without having to literally have everybody in one city working in the same office every day? Well, if you're talking about like, what is the line in terms of personal frustration just by being around the same people every single day? <laughs> I mean, distraction. You say like pop over, let's ask a question. My nightmare is people being able to come up and ask me questions because no, they would never stop. I would never get any real work done. There will always be more questions. I think that comes down to the team itself in, in terms of like who's on the team and how what the team dynamics are. In our case, we don't actually have like a policy of when people are supposed to be in the office at all. That's never been codified and we've always made it clear that like, yeah, you, you come and go as you please. So like the average person comes in three days a week. I tend to be here, you know, four, usually five. And, uh, you know, the people that commute from a little further come a little bit less frequently. The people that commute from closer come more frequently and all that. So that sort of self-regulates. And, you know, when people need a break from the office, then they just do a work from home day. In terms of the other stuff, in terms of the distraction, that all comes down to, I think, the understanding of how different people work. Like in my case, for example, that like I tend to be able to context shift pretty well just because it's a necessity. So for me, it's not a huge issue just to step off from writing for five minutes to answer a question. Other people, though, it is, you know, I know like some of the people in some cases, like to do their best work, they require shut door, eight hours, no communication. I'm writing all day. But because we work so closely, we know that. So we know how to work with each other in the most effective way. We know those nuances. We know those nuances that you wouldn't necessarily grasp when you're communicating with someone over Zoom or Slack. Would you even need to, though? My point is less about like the benefits of not being in the same room and more about how much in the same room time do you need? Why limit yourself to a talent pool that is either located in or is willing to be near your city? Why not go worldwide and just bring those people in every couple of months? Well, first of all, there's no talent pool for our industry. There's no like big pool of YouTube writers. Uh, that doesn't exist. <laughs> Even if you go to New York, that doesn't exist. The number of people who have worked in this industry and are now like available for hire is so minuscule. And this has not yet gotten to a point where it'd be remotely okay to poach employees from another creator. You know, it's still a relatively small, relatively social industry. So I think that would be perceived as wrong. Dick move. Yeah, definitely. So there's no talent pool to hire from. So it's more so about bringing people from associated talent pools and training them up. Like comedy writers. Yes. Yeah. That's a good example. Yeah. So the reason why we have a presence in New York is because New York has a very good pool of comedy writers and comedy writers. They tend to have a really specific idea about what they want to do with their lives. And it's in an industry that has very few jobs that pay very poorly. So we found that a good amount of comedy writers are interested in working in kind of the YouTube industry because it gets a lot of the pluses, but pays better. And generally there are more uh, available jobs in it. So like that works really well there. But then in Colorado, we have a really strong journalism scene, tons of like local and regional media publications with very strong writers. And generally, you know, 
outdoorsy, younger, energized, understand social media, et cetera, because it tends to be people that um, were idealistic in two different ways. First of all, they were idealistic on wanting to work within journalism, despite the challenges of working within journalism. Second of all, they were idealistic in wanting to live in one of the greatest places in the US, Colorado. And so I think that combined means that people are really just energized to grow within this industry and to learn, to train up. Every person in our office, none had any experience directly with YouTube, but now understand it very well. They've learned through the years, they've trained themselves, we've trained together, and they've grown. And you know, some have now been on the team for three years and are excellent. And that comes from the training process. It doesn't come from a talent pool. So if wait, if you're telling me that the only place you could find people that good is Colorado because Colorado has the best people, you're bonkers. And I say that as somebody from Colorado. We're not that great. No, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that what matters less than people's experience or the talent pool is, in our case, their willingness to learn and train. And oh, yeah, 100 percent. You know, that always is the case. But to varying degrees. You know, an engineer, in a lot of cases, you just need an engineer who's killer, is experienced, and has been doing it for like two decades. We specifically would not want someone who's been doing a specific style of writing for two decades, because then it's probably gonna be really hard to adapt them to our industry. In a way, like experience is kind of a negative in our hiring process versus something like young person who has killer writing now, but has not been, you know, ingrained in a specific industry and super stuck to a specific style. So that's to say, like, the local talent pool does not matter as much as finding people who are energized and excited to grow and learn with the company. There's certainly something to, if generally speaking, what you need is somebody who's young and enthusiastic and idealistic, and you can train that person up if they've got even a little bit of experience doing related things then yeah, you can probably find those people anywhere. And it might just be that as we think about building teams, there's just very different kinds of teams. The sorts of people I need to hire, as you said yourself, production can kind of be anywhere. Video editors or motion graphics people, illustrators, animators, those folks tend to be all over the place. And when we put out job posts and we start collecting resumes and doing interviews, we get them from everywhere. And it's already really hard to find the amazing people when our pool is earth. So if we limited ourselves to we'd only hire people in New York City, it's going to be harder to find those people. And they're going to be a lot more expensive. I found the reverse, actually. I've done a national search. And of course, you know, didn't do it with the resources and, and to the extent that Nebula did. But the quality of submissions was much higher when we said local only, when we surfaced it in kind of local sources versus when we did a national search. In fact, we did national first, could not find anyone even halfway decent. Then we went to local. And I think the reason why, specifically in our case, is you know another thing about us, like we're, we're not in Denver, we're up in the mountains, we're, we're in the middle of nowhere. We are in an area of the US that is one of the most attractive to live in. It is the place that people want to move to. Um, not everyone, but certain type of people just really want to move to. But the one thing that gets in the way is a job because we're in an area where the majority of the jobs are service industry. They're, um, they're in tourism or they're other kind of relatively low paying jobs with not a lot of upward mobility. Um, you know, they're ones that might pay you 40, 50, maybe $60,000 a year. And, you know, that might pay your living expenses, but it's not going to turn into a career. So what we offer is a career in a place where people can't normally get that. So 
an ability for people to live in the place that they want to live and get a career. It's the best of both worlds. And that's very rare around where we are. So I think the quality of, of submissions that we get reflects that. But this is the age group that you're targeting and the kind of experience level and the sort of job you're hiring for. For us, we're looking for experienced people who usually have families and don't want to move. Yeah. A big part of what helps us hire is the fact that people don't have to move. I think if we were to start asking anyone to move to New York City, we're going to get three people who do out of 90 people who work here. Yeah, I mean, that, that's why I, I would not say that in the majority of cases uh, for Nebula, it would make sense for people to be in the office. You know, if I was running Nebula, I probably would have the executive team all in the same place. That would be, no. <laughs> it is so hard. Like our CFO took us two years to find him. One of those years was like very actively out there hunting and like pulling every thread we could get, interviewing actively every possible way in which we could find the right person. We were out there trying. He lives in LA. He's on paternity leave right now. He just had a baby. There is a 0% chance he moves to New York City. Two of our, our C-level executives, they're married, uh, live in Colorado, and they have two kids, and all of their family is there. 0% chance they come to New York. Our CTO lives in Georgia. He has a wife and six kids. No way in hell he comes to New York City. Chief creative officer lives in rural France. No way he moves to New York City. If we made it a requirement, I have to hire an entire new staff. Yeah, it's impossible to change at this point. Sure. No, I, no I, not even about change. It's about trying to find those people to begin with. I'll pick Bradford, our CTO. We would not get somebody as good as him with his level of experience doing exactly the thing that we do in New York. He has too much context, too much insider knowledge for the thing that we're trying to build. He is too perfect for the job. I'm not saying you couldn't find somebody here who would be a good CTO. That's not my point. For this business, for what we're doing, the experience that we would need, there was only one guy. He is the best person in the world for this job. We would not have been able to hire him if, if this were a requirement. And I'm not, I'm trying to think, is there anyone at all on our executive team that we could get to move here? I don't think so. I mean, I'll ask. I do occasionally throw it out there. It would be fun. You know, these are... People I've been working with for a while, I enjoy their company. It'd be nice to have them around. So it does occasionally come up like, hey, just move out here. And the response is always like, yeah, <laughs> like 10x my pay and we'll talk about it. And it might be an unfair fight just because New York. New York is an expensive city to live in. And if you, if you currently live uh, in the suburbs of Atlanta and you have six children, then the amount of home you can have is very different for the amount of money you make versus what you get in New York City. What's it like where you are in Colorado? I mean, I know that there are certain places where it gets very expensive, but like, what's the cost of living problem barrier for you? It's absolutely high. I mean, the valley that we're in is, uh, you know, a very tourism-centric one that's ballooned a ton during COVID. Real estate values almost doubled in like four years. Oh, Jesus. In the most attractive areas. So the housing cost of living, it's a big concern. However, the advantage that we have here is that the geography, basically what it is, is like housing values go up when you're in the touristy areas, housing values go down when you're outside of the touristy areas. But the areas that are near the touristy areas, but not in the touristy areas, tend to be really nice places to live where you can find okay housing values. I mean, don't get me wrong, anywhere in the mountains of Colorado, you're paying a lot relative to the US average. Um, anywhere in Colorado, you're paying a lot versus the U.S. average. And then the second you go into the mountains, it raises. 
And then you, in the second you want to get into like our area, which is somewhat touristy, it raises even more. So it absolutely requires paying way more than we would if we were in, you know, Kansas City. But that does translate to the attractiveness of the job. Because again, the housing values here reflect the fact that so many people want to live here, similar to New York City. You know, it's all supply and demand. And especially, I think, you know, when these decisions are easier to make when you're young and it's just you moving and and you're not trying to fit a whole family or anything, the downside of the housing cost is reflected in the upside of just being able to be here and the fact that we do pay enough for people to actually afford living here, which a lot of the employers don't around here. So it balances out, but it is a big concern. And we have an issue of a housing shortage. Like our last hire, she just like did her first week out of an Airbnb that we paid for. Oh, wow. And then went back down to the front range and just searched for the next six weeks until she found a place. And that was just expected. I mean, I I think that'll be pretty much how any new hire that's relocating would go down is having to do something like that just because it's difficult. Do you worry about any, I don't know, ethical implications? I'm not saying there are, but like there's just thing I'm thinking about. If a significant portion of your staff moves to a relatively small town specifically for this job, do you feel more on the hook? Like, is it harder to let people go if you need to? Yes. (laughs) Okay. Probably. Have you had to? It's never even gotten close to being a consideration, so it's hard to answer. Mm. Again, I, I think considering that we're so personal growth, tr- like training you up based, mm. it's less likely to happen because from the get-go, it is always presented as like, this is not a one or two year and then jump ship to the next job thing. It's a three, four year thing. And that goes both ways. Like there just aren't better options locally to us for someone with this sort of background. It's only a matter of time though. You're going to hire somebody who sucks. Someday you're going to hire somebody who sucks. And you're going to have to let that person go. Probably. I mean, if we grow enough, yes, probably. But I think our hiring process has only gotten better. So the likelihood goes down through time because we have a better understanding of who to hire. No, the likelihood definitely goes up. You are going to hire somebody that sucks. Well, the likelihood per hire goes down. But with each additional hire, the overall likelihood goes up. Right. This is a problem that you will face. We had to let somebody go, uh, it was a month or so ago. They were in town from L.A. They flew in and made a mistake so big that it's like, yeah, you you can't be here. And it's like, well, this person has to go back to their hotel and, like, figure out their life and fly home. Or do they stay the other day? Like, what is the right answer? And I don't know what their thought process was because we don't stay that involved at that point. But... This is the thing we have to think about. Like, should we just wait until their last day? Do we address this immediately? What's the most humane way to approach this? I think that if people were moving here to take a job, the amount of pressure I would feel to make things work, even if they weren't working, I would probably feel more pressured. My entire work life is a series of scales I'm trying to keep in balance of thinking about other people's experience, but also trying to think about what's best for the business, which is kind of like the nature of doing this at scale, but also the nature of like doing client work for the type of creators that we work for. Everything is a, a balancing act. Maybe because of that, I'm just more predisposed to jumping ahead and asking myself that question. But it's interesting that it hasn't come up for you yet. I'm sure it will. But that commitment goes both ways. You know, that that pressure on that commitment goes both ways. It means that we're investing in employees. We're, we're investing long term and we're allowing them to 
fail if it leads to better stuff in the future. And on the flip side, they're committing to us. They they know that like this is not you know dipping your toes into it if you're willing to like actually move out. Again, not not everyone has moved out. We've we've been about 50-50 between relocating and locals. But the fact that you have such a lifestyle commitment to a single job means that you're really going to try to make it work. And vice versa, myself and, you know, the company um, are also going to work harder to make it work. I don't know, man. This feels like moving in with somebody on the first date. I need some time to let that shit breathe eh. and see if this is a person that I actually want to see every day. Sure. I mean, hasn't gone wrong yet. I think that our hit rate is high and I'm prepared for the fact that no hit rate can be 100% in this kind of thing. And that's unfortunate, but that's just kind of the reality of it. Another thing where I think the upside outweighs the downside. I think that wrapping back around the reason what I'm getting out of this conversation, which I truly had not considered before, I think that part of the reason why you see this the way you do and the way uh, the reason I see it the way that I do is not because one of us is right or wrong. It's that we are building different kinds of teams with different kinds of goals. We're specifically going after different types of people to build those teams. Absolutely. What I need to do is account for scale across a dozen different teams, and I need to account for getting the absolute best people we can get. And you talk about like the management cost of each person, like having to purchase a desk for each new person, having to make sure that commute costs are factored in, make sure that the, the rent, literally the rent of having a bigger office, that costs money. How do we afford all these things? Uh, we can have more people overall because, we, like I said, we're about 90 people now. We can have more employees overall because they're not all in one location. And the benefits for this kind of team and for us, and uh, I hope this doesn't come out negatively, but like the thing that you are building, a media company creating content targeted at a slightly younger audience, you want people who are young and hungry to come in and help you build that because you are young and hungry. What we are looking for is people who have lots of industry experience within the specific industries. We need a CFO who's been doing CFO shit. We need a CTO who's been doing CTO shit. And getting that kind of person, you're not going to find a 22-year-old CTO who has the experience you need to run something like what we're running. And so I think that it mostly comes down to I see the world the way I do or I see team building the way I do because I'm just building a very different kind of team. Not that you're wrong just that we're doing a different thing. Yeah, I think it. a lot of it comes down to what is the value add of an individual employee? What is, what is the value add of an individual person on a team? And it varies a lot. You know, I, I would argue that, you know, for example, at Nebula, the value add of another junior engineer is lower than the value add of a new CTO. I mean, I, I don't even need to argue that. That's just true. I'll tell them you said that. <laughs> Yeah, I, I'd love to have all the junior engineers coming with pitchforks. Junior engineers have no value, <laughs> Sam from Wendover. Well, if you play it back, that's not exactly what I said. But anyway. We can edit it so that you said that. Sure. Thinking of the individual value add, in our case, the, the highest value add people are our writer producers, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. So that's the people that we invest in, not only in terms of like training, not only in terms of salary, but also in terms of like investing in them by investing and having them in the same place. And, you know, to be honest, we, it's not like we don't care about post-production. We very much care about post-production. We very much care about the post-production team, but. It's not your secret sauce. Right. Yeah. It's not our secret sauce. Yeah. 
Yeah, this is the the Tim Cook thing of you invest in the things that make you great and different. And for you, that's not the post-production part. Yeah. I mean, I would still argue that in, in an ideal world, again, in an ideal world, the highest value add people for Nebula, which generally would probably be, you know, it's not exclusively the, the executive team because, you know, another consideration is like, okay, who's another high value add person at Nebula? It's your assistant. It's Tara. The value add to the company of you having an assistant that you work well with and being able to help you out in New York is massive. And that value add is much bigger because it is in person. And of course, like that's just reflected in that position. Oh yeah, I would starve to death without Tara. Yeah, so like that's a high value add person and especially where the value add is higher for being in person because like virtual assistants exist. I mean, plenty of creators have those. I don't know. I've heard stories of virtual assistants causing some pretty big problems for creators. Sure, but it is an option and some creators do find that to be a value add. In your case, you find it to be a higher value add to have someone in person. And that reflects all across the way. Also with like studio stuff. And again, this seems obvious. You can't have a studio manager who is not in person, but that's down to the value add. And I think that the value add, again, for example, if you had the COO of Nebula in the office, the marginal percent difference between a remote COO and an in-person COO might be tiny. Say it's 5%. But 5% in terms of the overall value add to the company of a COO, that's massive. If I can get somebody who's 100% better by hiring remote, then that's the direction I go. That's the direction we did go. I don't disagree with you that if in a perfect world we could all be in the same room, that would be better. Yeah, of course. But I don't think it's worth optimizing for that. I don't think that there is a world where we get Bradford to move to New York. And I don't think there's a world where we would have gotten somebody in New York who has his experience, his perspective, and his context for what we're doing. Or his connections. Most of our engineering team, he's built that team. We've slowly been poaching away every engineer who built out the streaming video platform for the NBA, because that was the team that he led. Yeah, and I, and I think this reflects in how, you know, the geography of different industries. You know, engineering, there's no, like, world capital of software engineering. Because, like, Silicon Valley is not that. That's not, you know, where a lot of the actual work goes down. Right, right. It's where the executives are. So there's no like, oh, Cleveland, that's the city of software engineers because it's not necessary. (laughs) I'm just trying to, uh, yeah, Cleveland should put that up as their city slogan. The city of software engineers. Yeah, but entertainment slash media, there is a world capital. It's Los Angeles and there's good reasons for that. It's a collaborative creative field and it's a field where no matter how important they are, At the end of the day, the writer's rooms, they get into some dimly lit, depressing conference room and sit in it for four or five or six hours, crushing, you know, DoorDash um, to figure out genius ideas. And they'll spend so much time, they'll spend all of that time coming up with very few ideas because the concepts themselves are so valuable. So the marginal difference in doing that in person where communication It's just basic objective fact. The communication is better in person. We know that, that there's like plenty of research on this. So that marginal difference, even if not massive, it's worth it when small differences lead to huge effects, which it really does in media and entertainment. LA is an entertainment town, but not everybody who works in movies lives in LA. A lot of those people will live elsewhere and then come in for projects two, three months at a time, maybe longer, and then they go back to their homes. That's not uncommon at all for the more successful people. Yeah. So you don't necessarily need to hire a writer's room full of people who live in L.A. You just need them to be in L.A. during the writing process. For individual properties, yeah. 
I think maybe one of the elephants in the room here is having that proximity and being able to build personal relationships with your team has led to jet lag. I don't think that unless you had spent time with Ben and Adam, I don't think the show works. However, I will note, you don't live in the same city as them. Well, it's worth mentioning that Ben did actually live here prior to moving to New York. How long was he there? Not too long, only like eight months or something. Okay. But enough that you were able to like get some context and, and build that relationship? Yeah. Okay. And in Adam's case, we had been working together forever. So what this reflects to, and maybe something we haven't talked about yet, is is trust, is, is trust in people who work for you. Mm-hmm. Because being able to truly trust someone who works for you is so incredibly valuable. I absolutely agree. It is truly like one of the most valuable things in a working relationship. Because then you can have them spearhead big decision-making for you and trust that the majority of the time, you know, it's never going to be hundred percent time, but the majority of the time they're going to make the right decisions. And if you can accept their hit rate and then trust them that it's always in the best interest of the company, that just allows for such compounding growth. And that trust comes a lot faster when you're working with someone in person, just naturally. That's just because that's how humans work. And, you know, in Adams and I case, we, we've never lived in the same city, but we have worked in person over a long time and across different projects all around the world. So we generated that trust. But I can say, at least personally, I know that that trust comes faster when I'm working in the same room with someone, when we're in the same office. And it's just a shortcut to understanding how, you know, not only how like the other people work as humans, but like how their decision-making works and what their priorities are, et cetera. Can we talk about the fact that you're splitting your time a little bit and you're spending more time in New York? Because I think this is also relevant. And part of what I do is I bring especially key people from the team out to New York all the time. Like I said, we do these these summits fairly frequently. And then my travel schedule puts me in cities with, with other folks on the team all the time. So I do get that FaceTime, just like what you're talking about, building the relationship with, with Adam over time. I've never once lived in the same city as Bradford. I knew him before we worked together here. We've never lived in the same city at the same time, but we've spent a ton of time together. We've built a relationship. There are ways to get there without literally living in the same city. You are a person who travels a ton. I have it on good authority. And with you splitting your time, spending more time here in New York, you can build those relationships in a similar way. Ultimately, we're probably saying the same things but from slightly different perspectives, we probably disagree way less than we think we do on this. Why wouldn't you require that they move to Colorado? Why, why come here? Twofold. One, they don't want to. And <laughs> that's reflected in the fact that, you know, they are comedy writers. They come from the comedy writing scene and they very much want to stay in that world. And, you know, in a little bit of way for Adam, he had already kind of laid down roots there before coming to the company. So like, that's part of it. It's just like, you know, they don't want to. And Adam and I actually talked about it pretty seriously about two years ago. And I got him 95% of the way there, I would say, in terms of convincing him to move uh, here to Colorado. Because I, uh, you know, we talked through in detail all the potential benefits for the company, benefits by extension for his career, et cetera. And clearly that resonated with him because he's very invested. But By the time I got to like 95% of the way there, I realized that like I got him here, but it was really difficult. And I don't think it should be that difficult. So then I kind of like tapped the brakes and was like, you know what? I think I've said everything I want to say. Now it's up to you. 
And ultimately he decided, you know, which I think makes sense, you know, knowing how much he likes living in New York to stay there. And similar deal with Ben, you know, he came out here for a little bit and we'd always thought of it as just kind of like, you know, seeing, testing it out, see if he likes the area, see if it's worth having him in. And ultimately he liked the area, but uh, he wanted to go to New York where he knew more people and closer to family and all that. And that was fine. And, you know, that six months or eight months working with him really helped generating a better working relationship with him. And then in both cases, what we learned is like, New York is the place to do entertainment in our case. Yeah. New York has a great talent pool of people who work well on properties that we would consider entertainment. You know, now we consider that half as interesting and jet lag the game. So it tends to be a very good hub for that. And that's just how we think of it now. Like that's that's our entertainment division, whereas Colorado is nonfiction. Mm, and you know, that that's why I split between the two. And there's a ton of opportunity in entertainment. Nonfiction is harder, but we like it more. So that's why I think it fits that I, I spend more time in Colorado. Um, also just because like this is where I like living most. But you know, that closer level of collaboration. Ben and Adam are, are able to be a little bit more independent, whereas here we're doing a lot more like new project development and stuff, especially in the nonfiction front, where we're finding a concept that works through the various different business models that we work through is uh, is pretty difficult. So it makes sense for me to be very involved and ability to work very closely with everyone here. With the teams structured the way they are, do you see yourself doing more things like jet lag or do you are you optimizing your time and energy for the nonfiction, the extremities, Wendover type stuff? Right now focuses on nonfiction, mostly because we just launched uh, a big entertainment property that's doing well and taking a lot of our time. So even if that's, again, I think in my opinion, easier, easier to find stuff that works and easier to grow. Nonfiction is really what all of us like doing more. Really? It seems like jet lag would be so much more fun. Um. It's, it's good, but I, I think, I think a lot of, it is fun, but personally, I like the challenge of nonfiction of how do you get people interested in things that are hard to get people interested in? Like, I find that challenge exciting. I find that to be like a true test of my creative abilities. So that's a lot of the reason why I like it. And I think that reflects in a lot of other people that we have in the office here because it's more unique. Like we want to just do the most unique thing. And, and jet lag, sure, is unique, but an ability to captivate people on topics that they were not previously captivated, to get people interested in stuff that is worth learning, like that has some meaning, that has, that's new, that has purpose. And, and, you know, increasingly, like we're, you know, a decent sized company now with some decent revenue and decent profit margins. I think a lot of our decision making always has been, and especially nowadays, given that the position that we're in, is really dictated by doing things that we want to do and doing things that we feel like have some purpose. And those two things really go hand in hand because ultimately those, that's how you make the best stuff is if you really want to do it, is if you feel like it has purpose more than making you money and making the best stuff is our ultimate goal. And all of that is in service of that. So you're focused on what are the things that are going to have a longer life, bigger impact. While jet lag is entertaining, how many people are still going to be watching the latest season of jet lag in 10 years versus how many people might watch a Wendover video to learn something? As we've gained a better understanding of how to succeed on the platform, we don't just want to get views. We don't just want to get subscribers and we don't just want to get revenue because I don't know if I can really say this, but like those things are kind of easy now. <laughs> <laughs> Look at you, Mr. Fancy Super YouTuber over here. 
Now, I think that if you know how to optimize, if you've been in this for a minute, you've done a couple of things, you start to find the threads, learning how to optimize that further, it isn't hard in the same way. Please correct me if you think I'm wrong, but I think that it's easy for experienced, successful YouTubers to build new properties in the exact same way it's easier for rich people to make good investments. Somewhat, yeah. I mean, like what I say is easy is just getting views or just getting revenue because we know it's very clear that certain stuff grows faster than other stuff. Certain stuff you can break in faster than other stuff. If it was fully about just revenue, we would make a finance channel today. If it was fully about views, we'd make a content farm channel today. And neither of those things, honestly, I think would be that hard. Real quick, I think for listeners, the lesson here is uh, if you want to make a ton of money on YouTube, start a finance channel. Really? I mean, if you can get any sort of audience in that genre, you're making so much money. Yeah. Just uh, start talking about how much money you make and then invest everything you make from YouTube into uh, cryptocurrency and NFTs and then tell your audience about that. That's the way to go. That's how you get a a million dollars on YouTube. I mean, hopefully people can do finance channels without being exploitive. And if they can, then they can make really good money and, you know, also hopefully make something that's useful. But what I was working towards is like, I think a big metric for our success now is the benefit to the company, not the individual channel, the company, the umbrella brand Wendover. Hmm. What is going to make the company seem like a better media company, a more effective media company? Well, yeah, that's the the prestige play. You're thinking long game. Yes. You don't have to worry about the views. What you care about is, are you building something that will get you views and get you revenue in five years? Not what's going to get you the most views today. Sort of. And, and the thing that is going to guarantee our ability to get views in five years or 10 years or 15 years, it might not even be called views then. It might not be YouTube then. It might be a completely different model. But the thing that stays the same throughout any any future reality of whatever the platforms are, however the platforms shift, however the revenue models shift, is that if you make killer videos, people will watch them. So that's to say the best thing as a company that we can do to set ourselves up for future success is have the best understanding possible at how to make the best videos possible. And what does that is not just making videos for views, because if we were doing videos for views, then what we would do tomorrow is we would just up the frequency on Wendover or something, you know, mm-hmm. but that will not make much progress in our ability, our understanding and our effectiveness in making the best videos possible. So those those bigger swings, those more risky swings into something that hasn't been done before, that's how we learn. And that's how we set ourselves up for success. We just want to make, and now this is going to sound like a Mr. Beast interview. <laughs> we just want to make the best videos possible. And we want to learn how to do that. And learning how to do that requires you know, making those swings, making those riskier plays, doing stuff when it's hard, not because it, you know, will get you views and revenue right now. I think that's the difference between you and Jimmy. And I've been there for the conversations where he's telling you, just do this, just do this, just do this, you'll make more money. And you always push back. And this is especially interesting because he is on record saying that Wendover is his favorite YouTube channel. Multiple times he's on record saying that. So while he's out there telling you change these things, he himself loves the videos you make. How much change do you really need to engage in? How much of your time do you really need to spend in optimizing for retention and more views when the guy with no attention span who's obsessed with views will still sit down and watch everything you make? Yeah, well, a couple things there. In Jimmy's case, the reason why he's so like, here's a way to get more revenue out of your video focus is not because 
Like that guy is the least money motivated, super wealthy person I know. Well, not that I know many people or any people uh, with that sort of, uh, you know, money, but like, I genuinely believe he is not motivated by money. He's motivated by making the best videos possible. I mean, he literally says that constantly and in his mind, and also in his case, the way to make the best videos possible is to have more money because he sees a linear relationship between money put into a video and the goodness of the video because he always has bigger ideas that take more money. Uh, yes. Yes, and. Um, I try to be so careful not to spend too much time talking about this guy. It's like every fucking creator economy podcast just obsesses over him. I think that he's able to do that because he doesn't come from money. And his introduction to the concept of money is as an enabling factor for the thing that he cares about. I think that if he were to have ever seen any of that money and experienced that kind of wealth, his perspective might be different. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing that is the way that it is. I actually think it's a good thing. But I think that's why. I think that he's not money motivated because he doesn't actually really have any. He doesn't live that lifestyle. He doesn't hang on to it in that way. All of his personal satisfaction is tied up in Mr. Beast. Yeah, he's, he cares about the numbers. He wants the numbers to go up. He doesn't care if he has cash. He wants net worth to go up. He doesn't actually want any of the money. He wants the high score. Well, that's what he finds personally fulfilling, making the best videos possible. Yeah, and that's fine. And it's it's all about like being the biggest and 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 making the things that most people watch. And that's that's fine. I've got no objections there. But I think it's interesting that the reasons why he might not care about that may not be what people would expect. I, I think that when people think of Jimmy, they probably think that he's like, even in the description there, it's like, this guy's super loaded. Well, maybe on paper. I don't think he lives that life. No, I mean, he, he doesn't take advantage. Like anytime he spends real money, like, I don't know, chartering a private jet, it's not to go on like vacation. It's to just get to the next shoot faster. Mm -hmm. I don't think I've ever heard of any sort of like big personal expenditure that he's done, like for himself rather than the company. I mean, I remember like he said like he had some Lamborghini or something for himself personally, but he didn't like it. So he just got rid of it and got, you know, a Tesla, which isn't cheap, but it's not a supercar. Remember him talking about feeling guilty driving around in a Tesla. He said he has employees who don't make much money, you know, relative to what he makes. And he wants the spirit of it to be we're all working together to build banger shit, not like I'm working so hard so Jimmy can live in a mansion. I respect that. I think that's absolutely right. Yeah. I, the best thing that you can do for a team is have incentives aligned. Mm -hmm. And, you know, your ability to do that is very tied to the financial model of how you reward employees. And that's also another big reason why trust is so important, because you want people working for you to really trust that you're going to genuinely reward performance with money. Because when they trust that, then that relationship is mixed. And of course, there are ways to formalize that. Like, you know, we, we've formalized a rev share system, for example, to further incentivize uh, and further align incentives. Rev share or profit share? For interesting reasons that would take way too long to explain on the podcast, rev share. But trust me, there's there's some reasoning behind that versus profit share. Okay. Well, then uh, we'll just let the audience imagine how boring that is. For yourself, you've hit a level of success and... Obviously, you, you run a business with a few popular channels and you do cool, interesting things. You're able to travel around a lot. Do you feel like you hold back at all in how you enjoy that success? Do you feel like you have to tone it down so that you're not performing it? Do you feel like you need to amp it up so that people can see it? Like, where do you where do you live on that spectrum? I mean, I think it's the kind of thing where like, you know, it's been a few years now where I haven't had to worry about money too much. 
So I've gotten somewhat used to just like not having to really ever think about, you know, what's going to pay my mortgage, for example. And being at that point of just like, you don't really have to worry about money more. That just feels like the right level to me. And I don't think I really hold back. I agree that like, you know, I would never buy like a Lamborghini and drive it to the office every day. But that's mostly just because like I have no interest in buying a Lamborghini. They're terrible cars. Yeah. And like even if you applied it to like a cooler car, I, I just don't really have interest. But I don't really feel a need to hold back or like hide spending money from staff or general public or whatever. Just because first of all, I don't think I do it in like a super flashy, egregious way. And also because, I don't know, I think that's dishonest or something. But like overall, I've just found, especially recently, like I don't want to sound like an asshole, but like- Own your privilege, say it. This is only something possible when you have a stable amount of money and you've had it for a little bit amount of time. Of course, of course. And, and I fully acknowledge that, but just like, I just really don't find money motivating anymore. There's so little- that I want or like I feel could be fulfilling that money would unlock so little. God, you're such a pretentious dick. <laughs> no, I think, uh, like I said, own your privilege. I, uh, the sort of person who's listening to this right now is either, especially this deep into the, the episode, they're listening because there is some level of aspiration to do the kinds of things that you do. And it is helpful for them to understand the context of what it means to, to get to a certain level, whatever that level is. It is interesting to hear what that means practically, or it's somebody who is a peer of yours, a contemporary, who is probably experiencing the same things. I don't think it benefits you, especially in this context, to be dishonest or to try to couch it. I don't think it benefits any of us. And this is something I've struggled with, trying to either hide success and pretend like I'm you know, down in the trenches in a way that I'm not, which just feels more false over the time. And it's not that I'm rich. At least I don't, I don't think of myself as being rich. I do well. I'm comfortable. I'm not flying in private jets. And for Americans, rich tends to, uh, for most people, be a level or two above wherever you currently are. So who knows? I don't go hungry. I'm comfortable. I tried for a long time to, I don't know, walk a certain kind of walk. But at what point does that become false or misleading? And it's not like I'm, I'm being extra flashy now. I'm just, I guess, shy about it. I want to be emotionally honest about where I am and what that means so that others who are either around me can hold me accountable for my behavior if I'm going too far in that direction or the people who are looking at me as some sort of signal of what is possible. And as somebody who represents a bunch of creators who work primarily in education genres, seeing that success, financial success is possible is a positive thing for them. So there's this interesting line that needs to be walked. And, you know, I'm not, not claiming I'm, I get it right all the time, but my personal opinion on this is I don't think that there's value for you or for other creators, you're not out there flying in private jets and like rolling around in stacks of money for videos. There's no performative wealth. It's not gross. I think the honesty is is important. Yeah. I mean, overall, like getting to that sort of financial stability and not having to really think about money on a day-to-day -day basis thing, that's fantastic. Amazing. Very fulfilling. Great. Amazing. I think there's a lot of people who find that there's not a lot more to be gained themselves to go above that. Yeah. But that's very contextual. For example, I think it'd be very different if I was in New York City, if I was just constantly around people who were a little bit more status oriented. Yeah. Because then money is less so about what you get directly from the money, but more so the fact that it 
unlocks doors for you. It gets you into like those social circles that you kind of want to get into. And just my dynamics, there's, there are no dynamics socially where that's the case for me. So it's, I think it's a lot down to the environment and in the environment that I'm in, there's very little that additional money could unlock. Yeah. If my salary were to double, I think I'd get a nicer apartment, but that'd be about it. Doubling my salary doesn't put me on a private jet. I'm still in like, I'm flying business class. I'm business class rich, but I'm not private jet rich. And there's that chasm between when you can buy a first class ticket and when you can buy or rent or whatever, a private jet. That's a lot of money in between those things. Yeah. The difference between making one and $200,000 is so much bigger than the difference between making $200,000 and $300,000. Yeah. And if you get you know the numbers high enough, the difference between a million dollars a year and $2 million a year is basically nothing. Very little. So it's really hard to motivate yourself to do the work. It's different when you're in an industry that has more compounding effect, but the creative field doesn't really have that sort of compounding effect as much to additional work where the bigger your company grows, it's just like exponential growth. Mm. That happens in like, I don't know, finance or real estate or like a lot of the more traditional areas of employment, but less so creative. It, you know, the, the work to launch a channel now, it's a little bit less because I have a team, but it's still not a whole lot less than it was to launch a channel five years ago. Right, right. So as the benefit diminishes, but the work stays the same, it just makes sense. And that, that I think is why focus shifts, you know, like in my case, towards other metrics of success, more fulfillment-based metrics of success. Yeah, I'm way less interested in having my name on something than I am in making something that is bigger than me. And it's weird because it's not like I'm a completely altruistic person by nature and I have no ego and everything I do must be for the greater good. That's not, I don't see myself as being that guy. I just recognize that like what I want Nobody gives a shit about my ego in 100 years. Putting my name on something doesn't benefit the world. Like, there's Rockefeller Center, but, like, who remembers what he did? His name being on the thing? Well, we remember his name. But, like, what's the impact that's felt? And I'm so much more excited about the impact. Can I have an impact on what I'm doing? Can I have an impact on the industry that I work in? Can I have an impact on the people that I work with and the audiences that they reach that goes well beyond the reach of my name and well beyond the reach of my lifespan? I'm not a religious person. I'm not even a spiritual person, but I need to, for myself, spend my time doing things that I believe will continue to matter even after I don't. Is this why it's more interesting for you to do the nonfiction stuff than it is for you to do more jet lag stuff? Certainly part of it. I mean, jet lag is fun to do in a lot of different ways. And it's especially fun to get recognized as having made something novel and, and good and all that. But it's not the kind of thing where I feel like the world is better off for it. I mean, you know, I, I don't want to like fully, fully discount entertainment. Like entertainment does have a big role and giving people, you know, entertainment and escapism and all that. That's great. But a lot of that exists. Your first job is to entertain, even if you're making a Wendover video. You first must entertain people or they click away. Yes, but there's always places to go to entertainment. It's not like, well, someone might be entertained better because there's jet lag. If jet lag didn't exist, they'd just be watching something else. It's not additive. So I think what's more interesting is an ability to turn that time that exists, time that humans devote to social media and video and TV and movies and all that, that's like a fixed pool of time, more or less. So the ability to take that time and turn it into something that actually might have some sort of positive effect on the world, I think that's way more exciting, way more fulfilling. And, you know, it's certainly something that that we think about as we go through Wendover, but 
as we develop more going into the future, it's only becoming more and more important to ourselves uh, because I think we see that we have an ability to grow our business, an ability to be recognized as having done something cool and new, and simultaneously an ability to have some sort of positive effect on people or communities or the world or whatever. And the combination of that combined means that it's going to be really fulfilling. And this is all, it all feeds back to each other. When it's really fulfilling, it means we're going to do a good job. We're going to do a better job in the future. It, it's all its all a cycle and roll credits. And that's when you get your private jet? Yeah. I don't want a private jet unless they make them electric. I would get an electric private jet. That'd be pretty cool. Your last line should be, I don't want a private jet. I want an airline. Nah, that would be a nightmare. <laughs> Would you rather have a private jet or an airline? Like if one was just gifted to me? Sure. Uh, definitely a private jet because airlines would almost certainly just lose me a ton of money, whereas private jets would only lose me a tiny bit of money. I'd like to thank our guest, Sam from Wendover. Sam, where can people find you on the social medias? I mean, other than in the description of this episode. Like me personally? No, not like where do they find you, like your your social presence. Do you want them to follow you? Yeah, if they want. Do you want them to like and subscribe? Smash that follow button? What's the thing? Only if they like the videos. What's your call to action? Just check out the videos if you like them and watch them. Oh my God. I don't want them to watch them if they don't like them. 